the um, word home, I think I said not so long ago, is one of the most emotive words in the English language. Children need a stable home. Young adults spend a brief period of a few years enjoying the adventure of moving to new places, living in short-term accommodation. But to be honest, it's not long in life before that drive to create a stable, secure, comfortable nest kicks in again. For most of us, our home will be the biggest purchase that we ever make by far. And if we don't live in a home we own, it will be the biggest, our basic biggest expenditure. And to be honest, through life, our television watching moves from celebrity cribs to location, location, location to a place in the sun. Uh, how many of our daydreams from young, from our youth to old age are associated with where we might live. And the Bible insists that actually that that desire that we have is essentially good. It is God-given. It is as fundamental as our desire for a life partner, as basic as our desire for clothes. Indeed, the Bible describes clothes and our home by one collective word, coverings. We need coverings, it says. Enjoying our Home is as primal a pleasure as enjoying food. You know, grey whales may wander, the, may, may be made to wander the oceans. Um, wolves may be content with prowling the steppes. Swifts may spend the whole year on the wing, except for when they uh, lay their eggs. But human beings were made for home. The whole story of the Bible, actually, is a movement from home to homelessness to home again. And these last two chapters of the Bible describe in in wonderful poetic imagery imagery that that, uh, God's ultimate purpose for his people. Last week, um, uh, Dan was speaking to us about about people and the focus of people in uh, in these, these final two chapters. Next week, Dan's going to be speaking to us about coming into the presence of God and how that is described in these last two chapters. But here, in the central one of the three, we're going to look at place, at coming home. Revelation 21 and 22 uses the, the, or, or expands the idea of coming home using two fundamental images. And it's those images that we're going to concentrate on this morning. The first is this. It describes a new city. 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Ignoring the the, the bride imagery there that Dan was looking at last week, let's, let's, let's focus on the city. Cities are a central part of the Bible story almost from the beginning, not quite at the beginning. The city first appears in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Adam and Eve's son, Cain, Builds a city, we are told. 
And from the start, actually, cities in the Bible are ambiguous. Cain himself, if you remember the story, is condemned to be a restless wanderer all of his life because he had murdered his brother Abel. When he complains about his his vulnerability as a wanderer through the world, God reassures him that he, God, will look after him. He does not need any more security than that. But immediately in the next verse, we find Cain building a city. And actually, originally, the first human purpose for of, of cities was fundamentally security. It was the primary purpose, for instance, of Iron Age forts. If you go just over that way a few miles, you'll get to Uffington Whitehorse and you will see an Iron Age fort above it. In insecure times, men built cities with walls on the tops of hills in this country. And uh, uh, going back further into, into history, it is the walls of cities that are uh, usually the most important because they give us securities. Cain is not content with the security God offers him and builds a city to be secure. Cities, though, spring up from other uh, motives as well. Um, uh, The desire for community. And that the community that uh, forms around a city um, produces a lot of good things as well. Cities enable, for instance, division of labour. Not everyone needs to provide food for their own table. We can find some people will do that and others then can devote their lives to, to other things. And you find in the story of Genesis 4, just a generation or so after Cain builds his city, we find that division of labor. Some live in tents and keep livestock, but others devote themselves to musical instruments and still others to make, to tools made from iron and bronze. The city historically enabled a flourishing of human culture. Alongside the good aspects of community, though, Genesis describes bad aspects of human desire to cooperate in city building. Genesis chapter 11 describes um, uh, the city of Babel, where they decide to build a tower, cooperating together now against God. And so that ambivalence about uh, cities runs right through the Bible. They are a place of uh, they are a place of wonderful culture and richness, and they are places again and again where people band together against God. Alongside the desire for for uh, security and the desire for community. Again and again, you find that cities become the focus of human desire for significance. Great leaders arise within cities. They may be good leaders bringing prosperity, but often, often they are leaders full, it fuels pride as well. Way back with the first city, the city that Cain built. He named it after his Son.
And so from the very beginning, the Bible story uh, encapsulates the ambiguity of cities. In fact, ultimately, the story coalesces into a story of two cities. There is a city opposed to God, Babel, which becomes Babylon, which in the New Testament, in the New Testament actually the Roman Empire takes on the mantle of Babylon. It's even called Babylon in the, uh, in some situations. And in the latter chapters of Revelation where Babylon is described as being destroyed, it has a remarkable resemblance to the Roman Empire. The 5th century theologian Augustine of Hippo described um, uh, human culture as the city of man, a place full of pride, a place that will be destroyed, and that runs through Scripture. But alongside that is another city, the city of God. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the place of security with walls. Jerusalem is the place of community where human beings cooperate together to worship God. Jerusalem is a place of ultimate human significance, a place where good leaders can rise. The city of God gets called not after Cain's son, but after David. In the New Testament, geographical Jerusalem, we are told, is heading for destruction. But the city of God continues. It continues in his church. Jesus called his church a city on a hill. The church is a place of security. The church is a place of community. And it is not named after Cain's son or even the greatest son of Israel. It is named after the Son of God himself. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And so we find that story of God's city finally coming to the new heaven and the new earth, the final culmination of all of God's purposes. The city of man, Babylon, has been destroyed. But the city of God comes down from heaven, says Revelation 21, as the completion of that theme of human history. Revelation 21, using this this extraordinary vivid language, emphasizes at least three things about this, this city of God. First of all, it is perfected. Verse 10, The angel carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west, and the wall All of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This city has all the brilliance, says John, of the glory of God. It It is Old Testament Israel made perfect. It has 12 gates with the names of each of the tribes of Israel over them. It is God's 
church, which remember was founded on the teaching of the apostles, of the twelve apostles, finally completed. The twelve foundations are named after the twelve apostles. It is perfectly square, we are told. Actually, it is a cube. It is as high as it is long and wide. Perhaps it's a cube because that, that, that was considered to be a perfect shape. It is more likely to be a cube because in addition to that, a cube was the shape of the innermost room of the Old Testament. Uh, of the Old Testament temple, sorry. The Holy of Holies, the place where, where God dwelt. The Holy of Holies was, was, was a perfect cube. Dan, uh, uh, next week, is going to be showing us how central it is that God dwells with his, uh, his people um, here. So for now, we must just see that this new city is, is one gigantic, perfect, holy of holies. And its perfection is marked by the materials that are used as well. Um, verse 18, look at the walls. Um, oh, where are we? The, the wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. Look at the, verse 19, look at the foundations of the, of the city walls. They were decorated with every kind of precious stone. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl. Um, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst, he says. Look at the gates and the main street, verse 21. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the, uh, and the Lamb are its temple. Sorry, that's, the, that's um, 22. 21. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each pearl made of a, a gate made of a single pearl. And the great street of the city was gold as transparent as glass. You know, Dick Whittington was disappointed when he got to London and found the streets weren't paved with gold. But actually, Scripture says you won't be disappointed when you get to the New Jerusalem. One of the common objections to Christianity is that it's just too good to be true. And I wouldn't blame you for for thinking that. These are extraordinary images, even if they're they're meant to be to be metaphors that as much as anything arouse a sense of wonder and awe, they they point to such a beauty and such a perfection about God's new heaven and the new earth. Surely they are so good that we must um, um uh, we mustn't take them seriously. But actually, if you think about it, that that's foolish illogicality. That, that, that's the logic of the person whose numbers finally come up with the lottery ticket, but they throw it away because I don't get that kind of luck. You know, it's the logic of the foolish scientist who sees something extraordinary and potentially absolutely world-changing in his experiments and he ignores it because that just couldn't be. 
It's the logic of the, of the young man who goes to a party, meets the most beautiful girl. She seems to like him. She has a great chat with her. She leaves him with her phone number at the end of the evening and he never rings her because blokes like me don't get girls like that. Some things seem to be too good to be true, but they're true. And simply dismissing them out of hand is foolishness. The consistent witness of the first Christians who weren't gullible, blameless and primitive, but who were intelligent, sceptical, thoughtful people, the consistent witness of the first Christians is, no, this this risen Jesus, who's risen from the dead and who promises us these extraordinary things, he is too good to be true. But those intelligent, thoughtful, investigative people were persuaded one by one that amazing as it is, it was true. And down through the centuries, perfectly intelligent, indeed deeply intelligent, thoughtful philosophers and thinkers have examined the evidence and considered what the Bible has to say and concluded, extraordinary and wonderful though it is, it is true. It is too good to be true, except that it's true. They decided. That's what the Bible's saying. The culmination of God's promises is a city that, from its very beginning, was always marred by ambiguity, but finally which becomes perfected in God's purposes. A glorious, perfect city. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, then let me say to you with real solemnity, it would be the most monumentally foolish thing to just turn away from this because it's too good to be true. And if you are a follower of Jesus then this is the culmination of your life. Not all that effort and energy and anguish and daydreaming that you invest in scratching together enough to have your dream home, which for 99% of us here, or perhaps all, will end up not being your dream home anyway. And then finding as you get older that it's fun for a while, But just like uh, Pete was saying about Lanzarote, it pours a little and becomes a burden. And then as you get older, it just becomes something that you can't manage. And so you have to sell it and move into a care home. And the care home then takes all your capital. And you end up dying in a bed which is not even your own. Is that life? Or is this life, as the Bible consistently says, a momentary thing, a fleeting thing. Every home we live in is just a tent. It may be enjoyable. 
It may be quite fun for a while, but it's not your permanent home. If you are a believer here, you are heading for something far, far greater. You are heading for the place that originates the idea of home. God's new creation. No, it would be shocking if we added up how much of our energy, how much of our our, uh, time, how much of our money, how much of our attention is focused on things which, whilst they have value, are really only fleeting and imperfect. And then weigh that against how much of our time and energy is spent on thinking about investing in our eternal home. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be. So make sure your treasure's in heaven. That's the perfection, but... but, but um, Uh, we need for a little while uh, just to look also at the size of this city. Verse 16. Um, The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide and he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And look in the footnotes. That's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. Almost certainly it's no accident that a 1,400 mile square was about the size of the known inhabited world of the first century. But this is not a square, this is a cube. This has, this has room enough for, for, for all peoples in all ages. I mean, tragically, as Dan said last week, not all will enter it from beginning to end. The Bible is clear about that. There are far too many people who walk away from the offer that is, that is simply there to us. Offered to us by Jesus as we seek his forgiveness and set out to follow him. Far too many people walk away from that. Perhaps even people here today. But there is room for all. All classes of people. Um, verse 24. Um, even up to Kings, the nations will walk by its light. Kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. All nations of people, verse 26, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Note that the the, the, the glory and honor of each nation will be brought into this place. The New Jerusalem will not have a sort of homogenized New Jerusalem culture. It will actually combine all the cultures of humanity down through history into it. All the best elements, all the good elements of every historical culture will come together there. The food will be biryani and chow mein and fajitas and, and refried beans and borscht and korma and the roast beef of old England. Not, not all on the same plate, you understand? But it'll be there. Yeah? 
People will dress in saris and suits and, and chinos and sombreros and whatever. The music will be Bach and Ravi Shankar and who knows, perhaps a, an edited version of 50 Cent. You know, it'll all come together. It may well be that perhaps we, we speak, continue to speak our diverse languages because they are so much part of our diverse cultures. It may well be that rather like at Pentecost, where everyone spoke lots of languages, but everyone still understood. We will have that going on in this new creation. What we certainly won't have is some idealised, homogenised, boring, so-called holy human culture, such as so many churches um, seek to seek to force on their people as if this is the way to be human. That will not be the case in the new creation. It will be the most glorious riot of colour and smell and noise and diversity. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. And then look at its security. Do you remember I was saying cities were born from a desire for protection? Cain seems to have built his city to be secure. Look at verse 17 of Revelation 21. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. 200 feet, 65 meter thick walls. Here is a solid, impregnable city that gives absolute security. So verse 25 is a real surprise. Did you notice that? On no day will its gates ever be shut. I mean, you know, you don't have to have watched Lord of the Rings and the Battle of Helm's Deep to realise that gates are pretty important in secure um, fortresses. But no one wants to shut these gates. Cities in the ancient world, you see, would have their gates open during the day as people came and, got, uh, came and went. But every, when everyone went to sleep, they shut them securely to stop, to, to stop uh, vagabonds and uh, enemies from coming in. But there are no enemies here. In a sense, the walls are redundant. Because God has uh, done away with enemies, all enemies, even the last enemy, which is death, says the Bible. Interestingly, the ancient philosopher Epicurus said, it's possible to provide security against all other ills, but so far as death is concerned, we men all live in a city without walls. We cannot defend ourselves against death. He said, and Revelation 21 says, you will not need to. There is no threat in that city. God has perfected it and you are secure. This is the picture that is set before us. 
perfect city, an enormous city, a secure city offered to all of us. But then just to complete the picture, we have in, verse, uh, in Revelation 22 a new image. Remember the city was born in sin, but actually the new garden that is described in Revelation 22 harkens back to, to another image, equally ambiguous, but which started off somewhat differently. The garden in God's plan began good. God made the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, its goodness is described in all sorts of ways. It includes mentioning the presence of gold, aromatic, resin and onyx. And gold and onyx appear in the new city, interestingly. It's described uh, not only as a good place, but a place of freedom. God says you may, may eat from any tree in the garden except just one. And it is described supremely as a place of life. At the centre of the Garden of Eden well, stands the tree of life. But um, we all know this story. The, um, um, uh, the, the garden started good, but because of mankind's sin, it was cursed. The garden, and actually by extension the world, became a place of weeds and of toil, and because Adam and Eve were cut off from that tree of life, it became a place of death. And so now we live in a world absolutely suffused with beauty and goodness. It shouts to us that it was made good, but equally suffused with pain and death. So that there are pests and droughts and floods and we die. What's going to happen to this world? Well, here it is. It too is going to be perfected. It too is going to enjoy resurrection life. Indeed, life is the dominant theme in those first couple of verses. Life is described in three different ways. First of all, as refreshment. Did you see that? The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. There were rivers in the first garden, but now those rivers which sort of seem to go round it or, or, or through it in a general way, now this river is central and flows from the very throne of God himself, bringing life wherever it goes. Then the second image is life as nourishment, here using the image of that tree of life that was there in the Garden of Eden. Down the middle of the great street in the city flows the river, and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, miraculously providing nourishment all the time, without a break, and therefore bringing life. And thirdly, the, the uh, tree of life brings healing. Verse 2 again. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Refreshment, nourishment, healing, 
a new creation, not just of God's people, but of the whole of God's creation, now enjoying resurrection life. There'll be some people who are particularly excited about the vision of a renewed city. There'll be some people here who are particularly excited about the vision of renewed nature. Well, you both have infinite satisfaction in these chapters because God will do both. So then let me ask you, it's very simple, whether you're living your life in the light of these great realities. You know, we, we, we will sacrifice enormous amounts of our money, won't we, on a mortgage or rent. And to be honest, there's a certain obligation about that. You couldn't live in Oxford if we didn't do that. But actually, are we investing in our eternal home with that degree of commitment? Jesus' promises in the gospel again and again and again are about eternal reward. Giving even a cup of cold water to someone will be remembered in eternity. Speaking the word of God to someone will make us will buy will, will gain us friends in eternity. Do you have that perspective as you set off at the beginning of the week? I want to invest more than anything else in my eternal happiness. Or are you just turning the wheel, earning a bit of money to live for a little bit longer? We have to do that. But where's your priority? And in the big decisions of life, as you think about what gifts I have and how I can use them for God, do you have these realities in your mind and your heart as you make those decisions? It won't necessarily send you off as some, some missionary to the, the far reaches of the earth. It won't necessarily make you into some freaky Bible teacher like me, it won't necessarily do that. But every single Christian is called to make decisions about their life based on those eternal realities. And what is it that makes you happy? Was it the trinkets of Christmas? Is it the fact that you've moved into a nicer place to live? Is it any one of a thousand and one things, which are good and are nice, and I hope they do make you happy? Or is your, your deepest, most fundamental happiness in the great reality and great truth that you're heading for here, a new Jerusalem, a new garden, 
new creation. And one last thing to those here who haven't yet started on that journey. Don't you long for that? Do you know it's not false because it's so good? Actually, it's true. And it is good.